folks, again, welcome and uh, good morning. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 8. Uh, Genesis 8. I'll just hold that in front of you here just for a few moments. As has been our custom, I have not read the text um, before launching into it. So I will read the text as we make comments uh, for the next several minutes. But, but let me just remind you where we are in the text, what we said last time we were together, and, and also give something of an outline for the chapter in front of us this morning. So you remember that we're dealing here with a subdivision. So the book itself divides itself, and of course the division itself then is an inspired division, something that we have to acknowledge. And as we look at how the book divides itself, we find ourselves at the end, really almost to the end rather, of that subdivision that gives us, of course, the conclusion of the antediluvian period, that is the, the period before the flood, gives us the narrative of the flood, and then really the resolution that comes to the end of that narrative. And as we look at chapter 8, we find ourselves then, of course, after the flood has begun, we find ourselves as genuinely the antediluvian world has come to its close. And now, as we turn our attention to what comes forward, you'll notice that as the inspired historian gives us this narrative, really takes us away from that period before we, that we took up in chapter 7, and we come into this new period, really a period that lasts, as we'll see, for only about a year and ten days. As the inspired historian gives this to us, he gives it to us in a very different way than how he gave that history to us in the previous chapter. You remember how chapter 7 was formatted. You had, of course, a summary, a reiteration of what you had in chapter 6. Then as you come throughout the rest of chapter 7, you have that summary expanded, and then even an expansion, if you like, of the expansion toward the end of that 7th chapter. Highly structured, uh, repetitive, of course, for the purpose of highlighting those pieces that are crucial for the reader to understand. But in chapter 8, you have none of that. In the 8th chapter, there is no repetition. In the 8th chapter, this is, if you like, straightforward narrative. Um, we are given, really, the information that is required simply so that we can fill, if you like, the timeline. Everything that's given to us, the monologues um, that we do have in this 8th in this chapter, are given to us simply so that we can understand the sequence of events and their coherence. There, there is no real poetic structure to it. It's simply straightforward narrative. And as you look at this chapter, then, as you look, as, as you look at the history that's before us, you'll notice that really there are some basic markers, some very simple ideas that the writer sets before us. In the first five verses, we're told that the waters that have come upon the earth abate. So that's verses 1 to 5. Verses 6 to 14, you have evidence of that abatement, the waters diminishing. Verses 15 to 19, you have the departure of Noah and the animals from the ark. And verses 20 to 22, you have really a foretaste of the world, the post-Diluvian world being rejuvenated. And that's really the structure of our text. It, it, it is simply the abatement of waters, evidence of that abatement, departure from the ark, and then the rejuvenation of the post-Diluvian or the present world. Now, as we look at this text then, I think that my job as an exegete and anybody's job as a reader is simply to follow as carefully as we can that simple structure. 
Um, see how the narrator sets before us these things as the inspired word of God. And so I want us to do that by taking up just the first five verses here this morning. You remember these, these words set before us, the waters diminishing, uh, their abatement from the earth. And so hear now the word of our God. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And just briefly, that word remember there, of course, is not that God had, as it were, forgot Noah cognitively. The idea of remembering here is that same idea that you'll find throughout the scriptures. God remembers, that is, God will, do, God will work favorably. He'll do good to those who are in view. You have this in Exodus 2. God heard their groaning, that's the groaning of his people, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That is, God intends to fulfill that which he has promised to the patriarchs. That's the sense of remembering in our text. God intends now to do good to Noah. And so we're told here, and God made a wind to pass over the earth. I'm not going to say much about it, but that word, made a wind, um, it's striking in the original. Literally, you could translate it, he pulled it along. Okay? And the waters assuaged, and the fountains of the deep, and the windows of heaven were stopped. The word stopped there is to be shut up or to be obstructed. And the rain from heaven was restrained, that is, literally imprisoned or restrained. And the waters returned from off the earth continually. Um, this is a Hebrewism. And the, the sense here is not just that they, as a word, gradually diminished. The sense is they diminished violently, forcefully. Uh, the idea being there is, is that there was, there was an incredible, an incredible uh, return a rapid return of the waters. And after the end of the 150 days, the waters were abated. And here the narrator is telling us this is the whole time that the waters were on the earth without abatement. So without abatement, without the beginning of this diminishing, the entire world was underwater for 150 days. And the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month, in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. So the word tops of the mountains there literally translated as heads of the mountains, like a person's head. And the sense here is, is not that they just were made visible. The sense is this is the first time they could be seen. They were submerged before. Uh, some would say that the reason why um, they were visible perhaps is because the rain had stopped, and so now they were visible. The text is far more clear. The idea is that these were submerged, and now they're not submerged any longer. It's not that they were obstructed because of fog or rain. They are now no longer under the surface of the water. And so they're exposed, according to the text, for the very, very first time. And that's two and a half, well, almost two and a half months after the ark rested on the mountain. Okay, so the mountaintops do not become visible. They, they do not really become, they don't come above the surface until two and a half months almost uh, after the ark has already rested on Ararat. So that's the first five verses. As we come to verses 6 to 14, you remember, this is the narrator giving us the evidence of that abatement. And so here what it says, And it came to pass at the end of 40 days, so if you're following the timeline that we're given here, that's the 11th month and the 10th day of that month, that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. 
And he sent forth a raven, which went forth to and fro, until the waters were dried up from off the face of the earth. Also, he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. And she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her, and pulled her in unto him into the ark. This is the first, if you like, experiment that Noah does. He sends out the dove and the raven. Now, why would he send out the raven? Well, the raven, of course, makes perfect sense. The raven is going to tell Noah very pointedly whether or not everything is still submerged. If everything's still submerged, the raven will come back, of course, into the ark because he finds no food. But if the raven does not return, Noah can at least infer that the raven found carcasses enough to feed on. Now, this is a gruesome aspect of the story, but it's one that we can't miss. If the raven does not return, the sense is that the bodies of those who are dead, animals and men, are sufficient for the raven to feed on. Okay? But why then the dove? Of course, the dove is not going to feed on carcasses, and the dove is far too sensitive to rest on the carcasses of those that, that the raven would eat. And so if the dove returns, especially if the dove returns with nothing in its mouth, Noah knows that even if the raven doesn't return, there's not sufficient ground for one to live on just yet. And, of course, you remember, here we're told the raven flies all about the ark. He doesn't come back to the ark. And the sense there, of course, is that all around the ark, sufficient food for the raven to fare on, uh, sufficient for his landing and for his eating. But the dove, of course, returns. As we continue to read, And he stayed yet other seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. The definite article there, I think, should be understood. This is the same dove. He sent the dove out of the ark, and the dove came in unto him in the evening, and lo, in her, mo- in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew the waters were abated from off the earth. The word plucked off there has behind it the idea that this is a fresh olive leaf. Okay, so of course, as debris is settling, you would expect to find withered, uh, totally drowned, and useless leaves and foliage all around. But this is something that communicates to us something fresh, something that's growing freshly plucked off. This is the second experiment Noah performs. Again, if you're following the timeline, that's the 11th month and the 17th day of that month. Okay? And he stayed yet other seven days and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him anymore. This is the third experiment, the 11th month, the 24th day of that month, and the dove simply doesn't return. Now, as you look at these three experiments... I think it's crucial for us to keep in mind that this is showing us, the narrator is showing us gradually how the waters are diminishing, right? The raven doesn't return, which tells Noah at least that the carcasses are no longer submerged. Then when the dove returns with the olive leaf in her mouth, well, he can tell here that vegetation is growing. The world is rejuvenating. But not so much that the dove feels confident she can survive out in the wild. But then as you come, of course, to the 24th day of the 11th month, Noah, through this third experiment, finds out, no, in fact, life can thrive now at this stage. 
as the waters are removed and the earth is rejuvenated. And then the text tells us, and it came to pass in the 600th and first year, in the first month of the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth. So the water is removed, we're told here, six days after that third experiment. So six days after the dove is sent out and does not return, the waters are removed. The text goes on and says, And Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. The face of the ground there, of course, is referring to the surface of the ground. And the covering there is perhaps the door. Um, Various commentators uh, debate this, but I think it's natural for us to assume it was the door that was removed there. And he sees here, this is crucial, he sees that the face of the ground was dry. Now I'll explain then why we have the addition in the very next line. And in the second month, on the seventh and twentieth day of the month, was the earth dried. Face of the ground, no more water. Then you come one year, ten days after the flood began. Then the water tables are returned or normalized um, to their pre-flood state. So as you're looking at this text, what the narrator is showing us is is that precisely what you found in the first five verses of chapter 8, Noah, by experiment, finds that to be true. He finds that the waters are rapidly abating. So much so. I mean, this is an incredible thing, isn't it? That just one year and ten days after the entire earth is submerged, the water tables are returned to their pre-flood stability. It's a striking thing. And it shows us, of course, the violence, if you like, of that water being removed. Um, But we'll come back to that um, in just a few moments' time. So we come to that third section then, verses 15 to 19, in which you have, of course, Noah and the animals departing. And the text reads simply, And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee, Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee, of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth, and be fruitful, and multiply on the earth. And Noah went forth, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth, after their kinds, went forth out of the ark." What's striking is, if we take, first of all, what you read there before, that Noah removed the covering of the ark, that means that Noah stays in the ark with the door open roughly for two months before the Lord calls him uh, to come out with the beasts. And then you have that fourth section, the rejuvenation of the world, verses 20 to 22. And Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, uh, this is a striking this is a striking language of condescension, the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. So, as we look at this text, you see, of course, those four basic sections. The abatement of the water, evidence of that abatement, Noah and the animals departing, and then the rejuvenation of the world, these last two verses. But as you look at this text, 
I want us to see this as it stands in relation to all that has gone before. I mean, just take for a moment what you have at the very last several verses that we've read. Take what the Lord says here. I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. What does that remind you of? Well, I think it should remind us of what you have, uh, not only thematically, but, but it should remind us, even in the very words that are used, of chapter 6 and the fifth verse, or verses 5 to 7, rather. You remember in that text, verses 5 to 7 of chapter 6, the Lord says that from his heart, again, something that's striking, a parallel between this text and that, that he will curse the ground, that he will destroy the earth for man's sake, and then strikingly, and this is so, so, so striking, that he even cites the continual evil that God sees in the heart of man. What's striking is in both texts, you have those ideas brought back to the fore. And that shows us in one sense, of course, that this is a partial conclusion to the narrative. It's partial because we have not yet, as we will in chapter 9, come to the covenant that God promised to make with Noah. But what's crucial for us to see here is that God, as he's concluding this narrative, takes us back, as it were, to the very moment of the flood. He cites all of these ideas back to, our, back to the foreground. And, and even as he does so, it's not just that he takes us back to chapter 6, but if you go back even to the previous section of chapter 8, verses 15 to 19 of our text, note how similar that is to the sixth day of creation, when, when God sends out man and beast and calls men to fructify the world. It's the very same idea that you have as Noah and the animals leave the ark now. There's a sense then, literarily, that you could see here that this is a new age. This is a new age that is beginning. And the narrator would call our attention to that. But I mentioned to you just briefly that as you think about Noah in the ark, so he's in the ark for one year and ten days. He's in the ark for that long. The door is open two months before he leaves. And the question, of course, is why doesn't he leave sooner? Especially if, of course, he saw that the water tables had normalized, the ground was dry, the waters truly had abated. Why does he remain in the ark? What's striking is for that two months, as he's looking out at a world, of course, that has radically changed, but a world that is being rejuvenated nonetheless, the only thing that will move Noah from the ark is the same thing that moved him to enter it in the first place. It's the command of God. Noah sees a world that is being rejuvenated, but he will not set foot in it until God says, go. Now guys, I, I don't know about you, and I think that it's right for us to read the scriptures this way. The anxiousness to leave the ark had to have been palpable. But in spite of that, in spite of that perhaps, that real potential anxiety, Noah only will move as God allows. This emphasis I don't think we should, we should really neglect. The narrator is showing us once again the kind of man that Noah was. He was a man who strove simply toward obedience. Um, I'll certainly come back to that in just a minute's time, but... There's another aspect here that we can't miss either, and that's what I hinted to in the first five verses of the text. So you remember the, the words that are used there, the description of the water ceasing. 
They're given to us in very strange ways, ways that even outside of the scripture in my research you would not find typically used. What you have here is the Lord saying about the wind that he pulled it along like a rope, like a blanket. Then you have the idea that the, that the windows of heaven were stopped. The idea is that they were obstructed. It's the language of the text. And then strikingly, and this even comes out in the original, uh, sorry, out of our translation, and the rain of, from heaven was restrained as though it were imprisoned. What's striking is, as the inspired historian gives this account to us, he, he talks of these elements as though they were humans. He gives these things to us through highly anthropomorphic language, describing for us, just for a moment, how, how God is dealing with these things. And he's dealing with them, strikingly, in the same kind of language that God will speak about how he will deal with Babylon. If you go to Isaiah 54, you have the waters of Noah uh, uh, brought back to, to the reader's attention. But to what end? That these waters of Noah, the analogy being that of Babylon, they would no longer, they would be restrained from harming God's people anymore. And what's striking about this text is you, you can't get away from the idea that the text begins by saying God remembers Noah, and then to use the language of the scripture, he restrains the elements from doing him any harm. The elements were employed by God to destroy God's enemies, yes, but if they were to ever cross that threshold that might turn that ark into a tomb, a floating tomb, God restrains it violently. That's the way the narrator describes this for us. This is the way in which God remembers Noah. He, he is eager to be sure that these waters of judgment would not harm this one whom he remembers. That language really should strike us. Um, but we'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment. As we look at this text, um, theologically, you have here, of course, that issue of Noah's burnt offering. And we're told here in this text that this was, and we read it already, it was a sweet savor to the Lord. Now, as you look at this text, one, it should remind us, of course, why you have seven clean animals brought into the ark when you don't have that, of course, for the unclean. One of the clean beasts, one of every clean beast, was to be offered, and in this moment, Noah does that. He offers one of every clean beast to the Lord. And then we're told that the Lord smells a sweet savor. Thinking theologically through this text, why is this so significant? It's significant, isn't it? Because as you come out of the ark, Immediately what Noah does is he, is he sets before himself and his family and before the Lord a type of Christ. I mean, note how the apostle thinks about this language. Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. As the new world, as it were, emerges from the waters of the flood, the first thing really that the Lord sees among men is this type of Christ. 
And here the, and here the narrator describes it as being a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. The second theological aspect, of course, here is that question that arises from the limitation that God gives us in verses 20 to 22. The Lord says that he will not flood the world anymore. Why? It almost seems incongruous, doesn't it? The reason that's given in the text is this. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, if you compare that with the beginning of this narrative, if you compare those words with what you have in Genesis 6, the cause of the flood, the impetus for the flood given in Genesis 6, was that man's heart, the imagination of man's heart, was only evil continually. And now the Lord is saying, I will not flood the world because man's heart is evil from his youth. And there really shouldn't be much made of the youth or um, being continual. Uh, some have done that, but really the text is saying the same thing. I'm just in different words. The idea here is, is that man is totally depraved. In one case, that is the impetus for the flood. Now after the flood, that is no longer the impetus. What do we make of that? I think Calvin very helpfully puts it to us this way. He says, it's as though the Lord is saying, if I deal with them according to deserts, there must always be a flood. If I deal with them according to what they deserve natively, there must always be a flood. And I'm, I, I'm probably going to get ahead of myself by going here, but what was the impetus for the flood? Or whose, well, let me put it to you this way, whose family did the Lord have in mind when he begins this process of telling Noah that there will be a flood? and marks the years for 120. I think a lot of us assume it was really, well, it was Cain's line. It was the apostate line. They had grown to a point a point of wickedness that they'd never reached before. And that, that may be true. But you remember Genesis 6. The impetus, the, the thing that brings, as it were, the catalyst of Genesis 6 is not the wickedness of Cain but the defection among the sons of God. Defection in the true visible church. It was not the wickedness of the world itself, but it was the wickedness of the world compounded with the defection in the church. And so when you come to the end of this eighth chapter, what is the Lord saying? He's saying that even the, the, the purity of the church, the visible church, is going to be insufficient of itself to preserve the world from judgment. Even even the church itself, the visible church and its purity, will not be sufficient to withstrain the hand of God. It must be only God's free mercy. Now as we look at this text, there are just three brief points of application that I want us to keep in mind. The first is, is of course, that there is a contrast and if you like, the zeal of God. Um, that's anthropo- anthropopathic terms um, that I'm using there, but it comes to us directly from the text. Here you find God really breaking up the foundations of the earth, opening the windows of heaven to destroy his enemies. It's a striking thing. God manifests in a cataclysmic way his indignation for the wicked. But when you come to the beginning of our text this morning, when you come to the beginning of this 8th chapter, 
what you have is that self-same zeal communicated to us in the self-same zealous or, or forceful language, God's intent to do Noah good. As he remembers Noah, he is the one who restrains the waters, who, res- who obstructs the waters, who pulls the wind like a blanket. In the same kind of cataclysmic terms, he would do Noah good. The self-same terms, by the way, that were employed before to do the wicked evil, to destroy them. The reflection, of course, you find in Zephaniah 3. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save, he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. What a remarkable contrast, that zeal that God has to do his people good with that zeal that he has to destroy his enemies. It's not a slight contrast. It's an incredible one. And it comes to us even in this text. But what of Noah? Noah is in the ark. Noah has walked with God all of those centuries. But as he's in the ark, what's striking is there is no communication, direct communication between Noah and the Lord recorded. The Lord has remembered Noah. The Lord is the one who's bringing back, because he's remembered Noah, all of these waters. But Noah's not told any of it. How does he discern the Lord's favor toward him? Well, it's through those three experiments. It's through those three experiments. Noah has to wait on divine providence in order to see that God's purpose for him is to do good. Now, of course, he can rest in that promise, but... How is he going to see that fulfilled? Even Noah, as he's in the ark, as a man who walked with the Lord, will only discern the Lord's kindness to him as God works. Even Noah, even in the ark, must live by faith and must wait upon the Lord and his providences be revealed to him. Um, Beloved, that should encourage us because, of course, that is our condition in Christ today. Um, I think often we think about the biblical characters and we think that they always had um, these kinds of immediate revelations. But Noah has to do three experiments to see the Lord's gracious purpose to him enacted. Um, And so the exhortation from this text, of course, is to walk by faith. To walk by faith, even when there are tokens of divine judgment surrounding us. Uh, This is certainly what you find in Noah and certainly something that the text commends to us in our practice today. Let's, let's close um, once more by turning to the Lord in prayer. Let's stand to pray. Our blessed and our eternal God, we come before you with thanksgiving, thankful for your word, thankful that it truly is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and thankful that in your mercy, This word comes to us in our own language and through the ministration of your spirit comes to us even with power. And oh God, we do pray that as we meditate on these themes, as we think of divine judgment and also divine mercy, that we would be exercised more to hate sin, to see that it is worthy of this and even eternal destruction but also to prize Christ, who is that ark for all of God's people. Father, we pray that we would prize him more 
hate sin more and live more into righteousness to the glory of our God, even because of what has been set before us this morning. So we ask all in Jesus' blessing. Amen.